Frank, Billy, and Dina at the carousel with where Frank, where Frank, where Frank, <laughs> wife and children. I'm gonna cry. I'm everything up. Okay. Welcome to Breakfast at the Beanery, a bi-weekly podcast about superheroes. I'm Becca. I'm Mika, and we're glad you're joining us as we break down our latest superhero obsessions. Follow us at Bat Beanery on Twitter, at Breakfast Beanery on Instagram and Tumblr, and of course, you can check out our episodes on Castos and our website, www.breakfastbeanery.com. If you've been keeping up with us for the past month, Mika and I recently rewatched both seasons of The Punisher. We started recording this podcast after rewatching season one and only introduced our Punisher thoughts after a season two rewatch. Honestly, we didn't really anticipate wanting to go back to season one so soon. It's just that good. We still have some thoughts to share about season one, the series as a whole, and where Frank fits into the Netflix Marvel universe. So if you're a fan of the TV show, then we hope you get something out of these episodes. The Punisher series follows Frank Castle, an ex-Marine whose family was murdered shortly after he returned from the military. He's introduced in Daredevil Season 2 as an antagonist, getting his revenge on the gangs of New York for the deaths of his family. It's during the season that he was put on trial for taking the law into his own hands, and he's represented by Nelson and Murdoch. By the end of the season, Frank learns that Colonel Schoonover, a man who he worked with and trusted, was directly involved in his family's deaths. So with this and a mysterious disc sent to him by someone named Micro, Frank continues on his path for revenge. So where does season one start? We see Frank take down the last gang member on his list. He settles back in New York under the name Pete Castiglione, working construction and reading a handful of interesting books in his spare time. After one of his co-workers gets wrapped up in something rather deadly, Frank falls back into a life of carnage to protect him. And the hacker Micro, or David Lieberman as we come to know him, finds him and reaches out about the disc he'd left him, which shows the torture and death of an undercover agent, Ahmad Zubair. I feel like I'm going really hard on the it's, ear. Okay, yeah, whatever. me too, probably. You know. Sorry. <laughs> so with that, this is where the story kind of gets more complicated. Naturally, we don't just follow Frank's relationship to this disc. Uh, David had to fake his death because he'd released this footage to the wrong people. Dina Madani, who we meet in this season two, is Ahmad's old partner, and she's desperate to get justice for him. The three of them end up working together to uncover who killed him and how it relates to the death of Frank's family. So here's where the spoilers come in. We learn through flashbacks and admissions that Frank was on that team in Kandahar. When David found this footage and released it, the people in charge, Colonel Spoonover, Dina's boss, Agent Carson Wolf, which by the way, super douchebaggy name for a douchebag, (laughs) and William Rollins, otherwise known as Agent Orange, tried to silence anyone that knew about it. Carson tried to kill David and the others orchestrated what should have been the death of Frank Castle and his family. They didn't count on both men surviving and coming back for revenge. We also learn that one of Frank's closest friends, Billy Russo, was involved in selling Frank out and indirectly a cause of his family's deaths. There is a significant focus on the importance of their brotherhood this season, but Billy's cruelness extends beyond Frank Castle. He also pursues a romantic relationship with Dina, which turns really dark really quickly. Yeah, he kills her partner, Sam Stein, and otherwise torments her physically and mentally through the season. 
This will ultimately lead to the final standoff with Frank, Billy, and Dina at the carousel with where Frank, where Frank, where Frank <laughs> wife and children. I'm going to cry. I'm everything up. Okay. I'm okay. All good. Anyways, you know, it ends badly. But wait, somehow there's more. <laughs> I mean, you did listen to the castle episode, right? Like with most shows, there's a subplot or two to follow. The story also explores PTSD and the livelihoods of our veterans. Lewis Wilson is one such young veteran who is struggling with finding his place in society after the army. He attends Curtis Hoyle's group. He attends his his counseling sessions and gets wrapped up in some violent behaviors throughout the season. Yeah, so at one point, he takes a public stand, endangering the lives of others. He calls out Karen Page in particular, because in Daredevil Season 2, she had published an article in The Punisher's Defense. I think largely she's one of the few public voices in support of The Punisher, because she spent so much of that second season working to to defend his humanity. So Lewis really only has her to turn to when he's trying to get his own name out there. Right. Yeah. Lewis calls her out and she tells him he's not like The Punisher at all, because He's endangering the lives of regular people, and the Punisher doesn't do that. And at the same time, she's politically defending the pro-gun stance against the senator, whose campaign is running on stricter gun regulations. When they meet up to discuss the politics of it all, Lewis makes a target of her, and Frank goes out of his way to keep her safe. He ultimately protects both Karen and Curtis from Lewis by this point. So to channel a generic angry girlfriend vibe... I just find it funny how Mr. Frank, I can't move on, Castle, who acts as though there's nothing left for him, would go to hell and back for Karen and Kurt. But you know, that's just my opinion. (laughs) Speaking of opinions, we won't be doing the Best of Twitterature segment this week, but we do have something of its own segment for Punisher episodes. So I guess you could call this part of the show, Save Punisher, oh please God, save Punisher, please. (laughs) As we've stated before, please follow at SafePunisher if you'd like to support the return of the show. I believe some people speculate there could be a revival now that Netflix is letting it go after two years, but the future still remains unclear. What we do know is that the more people speak out about what they want, the more likely shows like this can be revisited. So go to SavePunisher.com, sign the petition, use the hashtags, and make some noise about the show, please. Please do it. Then we can talk about season three when it comes out. <laughs> yes. Uh, so why don't we hit our snack break? Uh, any favorites this week? <clears throat> Poke bowl. Not a snack, but a meal. My favorite kind. And I rewarded myself with one last week. I bought this really delicious Italian bread at Walmart last week, and I buy it every now and then. It's all I can think about. I ate it so quickly. I know it's just bread, but it was so good. <laughs> I mean, bread is just like, when bread is good, bread is it hits. good. <laughs> you can quote me on that. When bread is good, bread is good. I guess for like an actual snack, I'm currently into Kawartha's chocolate peanut butter ice cream. So, Which, that, sounds, yeah. that sounds pretty good. 
honestly, in the spirit of the beanery, I'd like to start having cafe drinks while we're here, but the fact is I simply do not have any at home. <laughs> I have Dr. Pepper. <laughs> you have tea? That's cool. That's very, that's true. I do have tea. It's, yeah, my, my lack of even tea is disappointing. You know what's not disappointing? Insert finger guns here. The Punisher. Where do we even start? To avoid redundancies, we'll try to cut some of this analysis down to things we haven't addressed in the Season 2 episode or the Castle episode, mm-hmm. such as Frank's particular journey this season and the supporting characters. So what were some of your favorite elements of the season? Well, the scene when Agent Orange finally gets what what's coming to him, I've mm-hmm. never been more excited to see a man perish and... I mean, I've been excited to see men perish. (laughs) It's largely that has to do with how earned it felt. And he was like truly an insidious and real villain. Exactly the kind of bureaucratic monster we may very well have running our countries, but I digress. He was so removed and had dehumanized every single person in the room including himself because he's such like he self-elevates and has an unmatched god complex and that says a lot about the characterization this season somehow he makes billy russo feel more human which is like right that is that's 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 something right there I think ultimately the season had a well-rounded cast of characters, which was a complaint for us with season two. Mm-hmm. Um, we're introduced to Billy, Curtis, David, and Dina, and basically have to hope that we can connect to anyone that isn't Frank or Karen, who were established from Daredevil. That's the thing, though. They're actually all necessary and compelling in their own rights, and I would watch an entire show focused on any one of them, honestly. Like, they all have something significant for their own story that can really drive the plot along. I mean, personally, I'm leaning a lot towards Curtis and Dina, five seasons of just them. (laughs) And I hope someday, somewhere, we get more content for the Liebermans. It's what we all deserved. Or even like the Liebermans with Amy from season two, that would simply be chef's kiss, as the kids say. As the kids say. We also have a lot of love for the cinematography of season one versus season two. I can't help but compare the camera work of Daredevil, which is, you know, one of the biggest Netflix shows. Um, mm-hmm. One of the most stunning parts of Daredevil is the choreography of his fights, especially the ones shot in one take or in confined spaces. Yes. And there's a lot to be loved for how some of these shows are shot. The first season utilizes space well and highlights some of the weight behind Frank's thoughts. We know we're visualizing things from his point of view in a way we don't always see with other leads. So it kind of takes that... I keep wanting to lean on the word romance. It takes that romance of like the choreo we see with Daredevil and kind of shifts it so that it fits Frank more. Yeah. There was such a like contrast between the series premiere and the second season premiere. And even the first few scenes where Frank is wrapping up his crusade from Albuquerque to New York. Like the shot where we see him eliminate someone from a rooftop in pure sniper mode. It feels so vastly different from Frank just chilling in a bar in Mm -hmm. season two. And I mean, I get it. He's in a completely different headspace at the start of both seasons, but the first felt more fresh. Each choice throughout the season felt deliberate. So for example, to have Karen and Frank have wide and close shots in front of the bridge, um, there's this like one shot 
wide shot of them just like in the center just and he's like leaning in to talk to her uh it like <laughs> indicates their emotional intimacy or rather how frank is pushing her and that away and then this time around i noticed how they set up the big bad billy reveal and how they framed him so early in the season billy visits um curtis's support group and we see a shot of him from behind it's just his silhouette and the visual atmosphere feels more ominous than the warm tone of his voice then minutes after that shot they frame billy with jesus on the cross on the wall in the background because curtis's support group is in the basement of a church and i might be reading way too much into this but i found it really interesting considering i think it's a catholic church because as a protestant i'm not used to seeing jesus's figure on crosses having the cross not be empty and full of that sacrifice visually with billy sat in front of it was just an extra layer of fun for his character because we know who he sacrificed well, and also I think it it might play a little bit on, like, the God complex that we had mentioned earlier yes. for Agent yes. Orange. I think there's a little bit of, par- like, of a parallel that you can see with him and Billy. Like, they're definitely mm-hmm. different, but he, Billy being the narcissist that he is, I think it's a good um, choice there to, to draw him to that image. Mm-hmm. We focus a lot on characterization in our reviews, but I think it's because the characters often drive the story, right? So I've watched The Punisher a few times over now, and every time I fall in love with the supporting characters more. In particular, I think Dina's story is (laughs) very significant. She's introduced as this determined character seeking vengeance for her murdered partner. She's stubborn. She's closed off in some ways. I believe there are moments in the series where Sam highlights her flaws or calls her out because there are times she can't as they say, see the forest for the trees. Does this sound familiar? I think it's safe to say there are some serious parallels between Dina and Frank. Mm -hmm. They both think answers this season relating to the murder of people close to them, coincidentally orchestrated by the same people. Mm -hmm. They act as these friendly antagonists, at one point playing a literal game of chicken with speeding cars. Um, Their roads are eerily parallel to each other. For example, they both feel this hollowness after they get the answers they need, and we see this most significantly for Dina in Season 2. But even in simpler ways, we see the ways they overlap. Dina survives a shot to the head at the end of the first, at the end of the first season, which calls back to Frank getting shot before the events of Daredevil Season 2. Much like Frank, she can't easily be shot down or silenced. I love Dina Madani. I think they establish her character brilliantly and economically. In her first few scenes, we can understand the kind of person she is without her having to say a lot. So the initial glimpse we get of her is her driving into the office. The way she holds up her badge is so certain. And then when Carson Wolf, again, super douchebaggy name, makes Mm -hmm. these really offensive remarks, she snaps back so quickly. She says, sexist, racist, and demeaning of all my abilities, sir. Well done. It's never explicitly said that her mother is a therapist, but because she says something like, I don't need you to psychoanalyze me, I'm not your client, 
we can appreciate how she interacts then with Krista in the second season, while gaining an understanding of how she handles her emotions, which um, is not the most healthy way. And I agree with you, she and Frank are very similar, and a lot of it has to do with how stubborn they are. They are unfailingly loyal to those who they love, and then, yeah, they've both been portrayed by the same person that they trusted so much. And we mentioned this in episode 4 when discussing her storyline in the second season, but I really did miss seeing her mom and Rafi. She needed a character to interact with her the way that she interacts with Sam. And she and Billy definitely gained from each other in their relationship, but obviously that was toxic and her respect for him was Mm one-sided. Meanwhile, to your point, Sam constantly called her out, but they were ultimately on the same team and it would have been so cool to see that mirrored in the second season or in later seasons through another character. Right. I just keep wanting to talk about her. Am I in love with her? Maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> she's, she's like this hardened character, which can make it more difficult for the audience to connect at times. She's also very set in her beliefs and isn't afraid to stand her ground, which can be both alluring and difficult to deal with. But that's why a character like Sam can bring out all of her strengths, because Sam is outspoken, sure, but he's also understanding and patient and empathetic. He doesn't give up on her, lash out at her, and we see that same warm relationship with Rafi, even if he can get frustrated with her decisions. Like, he ultimately trusts her. And you're right, Dina is kind of introduced and indefined through the way other characters treat her. And so we feel just as lost as her in season two when she has no one standing steadily at her side. She seems, in the season two finale, happy? (laughs) Question mark? (laughs) Um... Presumably, we could have seen her with more people in season three, like a steady support team for her good friends. Um, But for season one, it ultimately broke her down, which is really heartbreaking. It's her downward trajectory, though, that earns her a spot in that final showdown, because we're seeing the Frank Billy foil culminate at the carousel, and she's on that same path as them. Dina's story continues to intertwine with Frank's, and even though they ultimately don't have the same kind of intimate relationship as he might have with Karen or Curtis or Amy, they have this unspoken, constant bond. It's why he can come to her in the next season at all. Yeah. Similar to Dina, the Liebermans ground the story and are the heart of the season, and I think juxtaposing this tight-knit family who believes they've lost their father slash husband versus Frank who is trying to move past or rather is stuck on the deaths of his wife and children, it could have felt ingenuine or forced that because these characters feel rounded, so Leo's cleverness, Sarah's fierce and fighting spirit as a mother and wife, Reed's smudged ink, (laughs) the boy, (laughs) both... Sorry, no hate to him. (laughs) That was very accurate, though. He played him very well. He was very much like a 12-year-old angry little boy. He he really did mimic Frank's kid, too. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely gave off those Frank Jr. vibes. Mm -hmm. And both Frank and the audience get a glimpse of what could have been, and more importantly, what could be, and what Frank doesn't let himself have. Looking at you, family dinner. Looking at you, Karen Page. Speaking of Karen Page. We won't linger on the castle of it all. (laughs) Check out the episode before this if you want to hear our thoughts on that iconic ship. Although, I always have more. (laughs) 
while we're in season one, we need to address the elephants in the elevator as it was. <laughs> uh, we said it last episode and we'll say it again. This is the romantic storyline of The Punisher. I know that we have Dina and Billy for sure. Um, but to call that romantic <laughs> is a disservice, especially mm-hmm. to Dina. So even though it is a relationship and there is romance involved, it's definitely not healthy and it serves more as a uh, way to explore Dina's fall, I would say. Um, so the romantic storyline that really is a str- like a strong love interest is Frank and Karen. Um, the Punisher of the comics may not feel the same I don't know and so that I say do what you gotta do Frank but the Punisher of Netflix is compassionate and romantic by his nature this is established through John's intense acting and the script itself we know that Karen is a parallel to Maria but through season 1 we can also see that Sarah is a parallel to them too Um, the Lieberman's overall mimic the dynamic of his own family But Sarah is sort of a blend of the Maria we know from Frank's stories and Karen as we've seen her. She's outspoken, she does what she has to do for her family, and she knows her husband like the back of her hand. Uh, We see this dynamic in David's flashback where he tells her that he plans to turn over the Kandahar footage. She doesn't approve of it because she doesn't want anyone to come after them, but she can't deny that David's the kind of person to do it anyway because that's what's right. Karen reflects this with Frank too, as we can see by her steady support of him, even when she disagrees. Again, go listen to the Castle episode for more. My point is that this season would have lacked something without a like healthy romantic plot. And Frank is romantic. He's chivalrous and supportive of the women in his life. In his life. Women in his life? Supportive of the women in his life. And also, his eyes? Do you see the way he looks at her? Once again, I am here to say that Frank Castle literally said that Karen means the same for him as Sarah means for David, and that is a whole-ass marriage. So, there's that. We made a mistake bringing them up, because now it's all I can think about. A moment of silence for Karen Page and Frank Castle. Moment of silence is over, okay. (laughs) Since we can't spend another hour talking about Castle, I will say, so this is me moving on guys, that it was cool to pick up on the finer details of characterization, especially with what I like to call Frank's summer reading list, leading wrist. (laughs) Summer leading reading list. (laughs) This time around, we tried to pause every time our boy Castle was flipping idly through a book. He's got a diverse taste. We start off with him reading Moby Dick, and at some point he's made significant progress in David's copy of Cyborgs and Barbie Dolls, Feminism, Popular Culture, and the Post-Human Body. So yes, Frank Castle reads up on feminism. Whether he likes it or not, we have to recognize his willingness to try something new. And he also reads poetry. I don't even read poetry that often. Yeah, I think his openness to new ideas speaks to how he adapts to situations. It translates to his methodical and inventive ways of uh, handling threats, but it also (laughs) gives us insight on who he is outside of being a soldier. So to that point, another subtler, subtler, subtler aspect of Frank's characterization or psyche is how he lingers on memory. More specifically, I noticed differences in how Frank relives moments with his children and wife. 
Through most of the season, Frank's recollection of Maria is static. It's the same morning, that last morning before they headed off to Central Park over and over until the second last episode. Meanwhile, Frank is able to shift through different memories of his children, teaching Lisa guitar, taking the ferry with Lisa and Frank Jr. To me, this indicates that Frank is stuck on Maria as an ideal, which is more obvious when she does ask him to come home with her in that second last episode. That's such a great point. And we see that too, not just in the visuals, but when he tells people stories of his family in Daredevil season two, in season one and in season two of The Punisher, he Mm -hmm. tells three separate stories to Matt and Karen of his kids that are like really detailed, intimate stories. We don't really get that with Maria. Yeah. And I mentioned earlier that we see the story through his lens, so the way that characters are portrayed in scenes with him or in memories with him plays a significant role. We can see this with some of the flashbacks of Billy, too. There's a scene in episode 3 where they've just come back from a mission and William Rollins asks the team if they've killed their target. And we get this scene from Frank's point of view. It's all hazy and the sound is distorted because he's, like, heavily injured. (laughs) Um, and probably also mentally strained because he didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And in this scene, and so many like it, Billy mimics Frank, which is this great way of highlighting how Frank sees Billy as his brother, his best friend, this person that understands him in a unique way, but also it shows some of the details beneath the surface about what kind of a person Billy is. I could go on about Billy Rusto forever, though, so be sure to tune in next episode when we focus in on characters like Billy throughout the series' run. The characters, great. Cinematography, again, chef's kiss. But to quote Hannah Montana, nobody's perfect. Or in this case, no show is perfect. Right. We definitely had our issues with this season. Largely, it was much better than season two in terms of story and characterization, but some decisions felt over the top or almost spoon-fed. For example, because it explores the lives of veterans and those with PTSD, we do have a spotlight on current political and social topics. Generally, that wouldn't be a problem, and I think creative work is a fantastic avenue to explore discourse, and probably one of the better ones. Um, However, there comes a point where your story doesn't allow for opposing views or simply assumes something of the audience. It's most obvious for me when the characters overall assume quote-unquote good characters wouldn't hurt cops or when recurring characters overtly slam liberals and the left. We get a little pushback narratively during one of the group sessions, but it's largely shut down. Um, And honestly, I sat on my issue with this second point for a long time because it didn't feel entirely unrealistic. I almost want to say it didn't serve the story well, but the most vocally anti-liberal character was kind of characterized by those opinions, so maybe it played the role it was meant to. Honestly, I'm probably projecting a little because I hear people like that all the time in real life and didn't really see anyone from the opposing side, even characters that might have had a great perspective on it. Instead, we see a steady stream of more conservative or oppressive point of views, like Karen being against stricter regulations on gun control or Dina in both the first and second season, highlighting cops as heroes and untouchable by the, quote, moral, unquote, Frank Castle in spite of the corruption present in the government and other organizations in canon. At least in Gotham, as we've covered before, the Copaganda Central, Central, 
We got to see characters like Selena and Ed call resident hero cop Jim Gordon out for his hypocrisy. We never really see that in The Punisher. I I mean, there's like the one character in a group session that's like, hey, maybe, (laughs) maybe you're wrong. And then Curtis like shuts it down. Yeah. The senator is also vocally liberal, sure, but the lesson he learns is that he's wrong to fight for stricter gun control because he ultimately needed protection from a threat. So he's painted as a hypocrite, which, again, maybe not entirely unrealistic, but for him to be a voice of that point of view and, like, the sole voice of it, it shows a bias. I don't even think anyone would have to agree with particular points to enjoy the show. I mean, that you know, teeters on a censorship line almost. Um, But it felt apparent where the bias laid due to the lack of genuine narrative opposition. Also, like, if a cop killed or threatened someone important to Frank, why wouldn't he take them out, Dina? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The pessimist in me wants to say that there was really no way around this bias because even, and again, I know that they are now two separate entities to my understanding, in the comics, the Punisher has such a black and white code. So I think it's hard to escape from that propaganda when your protagonist is a cis straight white man mm-hmm. who also happens to be a veteran and when he's based on a off an iconic franchise. Right. But I'm with you. It rattles me that even this version of Frank Castle is sometimes seen as too soft. I know that when I first binged this season, I was complacent enough that I was even appreciative of the ways in which they did explore liberal views. But you're right. There wasn't enough, I guess, push and pull in that sense. I think they were playing it safe. On a related note, I want to go into another area that the show largely didn't dive into. So buckle in. Before I go into this, I will give a huge disclaimer in saying that I'm not an authority or the best resource for this, and I'm not trying to be. I'm just a Southeast Asian woman of color consuming questionable and very American media. Right. So something that really didn't sit well with me this season, especially, was how they handled or rather avoided American imperialism and the killing and discarding of brown people. There's a montage in the first half of the season that takes place during the night where Frank saves Schoonover's life. We see him ruthlessly killing Afghani soldiers while a sad country song with incredibly patriotic lyrics plays in the background. And we get the impression throughout the show that they want to be as multifaceted as possible when it comes to social issues like gun control or things like veteran affairs. And they touch on themes of power, honor, duty, and certainly I'm glad that they have um, Dina, a Persian-American. I'm glad that she's such a prominent figure. Mm -hmm. However, they don't have Frank or others really explore how they ended brown lives specifically. I mean, you could argue that the whole idea of Ahmad's innocence is that, but they do the same thing that Gotham does, where instead of focusing on that person as a human being and what cultural factors tie into who they are, their identity, they make it all about how he was a cop 
So again, that propaganda is deeply ingrained. Right. One line of Dina saying to Billy that she is American is not enough, I think, to really reflect the complexity of A, being brown, and B, having some kind of relationship with America, or more specifically, American soldiers. You could argue that this story is Frank's, but I really think they could have showed the character's brutality, or rather, his descent into that brutality without dehumanizing brown people on screen or underscoring that dehumanization with overtly patriotic music. Right. Frank doesn't want to go kill people, uh, but that's not translated in a nuanced enough way. We know that scene is a result of Schoonover and Rollins failing to listen to him. He doesn't want to go on this mission. He knows it will endanger his team. He knows that their men will die. But in that scene where he loses himself, the audience can get lost too in the scene's purpose. Exactly. It just feels irresponsible not to convey that aspect of his character in a way that doesn't diminish other characters who come from underrepresented and really misrepresented minority groups. And I know that this is a lot, like asking a lot, out of giants like Marvel or Netflix, which don't exactly have the best track record with representation as it is, but, and this is something I'm always talking about, whether it's with you or my parents, Strangers Online, or Truth or Chagrin, my other friends, usually I find it hard to sit back and accept media for what it is. And I love this show. Frank Castle is probably one of my top three Marvel characters, but the whole point of this podcast is to be thoughtful in how we consume media. And I think that's crucial. We can't just let Disney and Marvel and Netflix dictate the story. We can love the story. We can love the story to bits, but these stories have a lasting impact. I was talking to my mom the other day about this, how sometimes I get butt hurt when people in my life tell me, you should just enjoy the movie or enjoy the TV show. And during our conversation, she brought up a recent film from a very large franchise that I will not name that had two characters who I will not name kiss <laughs> and how it bothered her because it felt unearned and unhealthy. It and you could say, no. yeah. You could say about any of our issues here that, oh, it's just one scene in one measly TV show. Get over it. But these stories, no matter how you feel about them, they shape our worldviews. Mm -hmm. Growing up, I was convinced that even though I was being mistreated by somebody, that they loved me, which meant it was okay because of what I'd seen on movies and television. And I know for a fact that teenagers do watch The Punisher. I know that brown teenagers watch The Punisher. If we remain comfortable with every single aspect of every story, then we'll end up with more slush for our brains, like the live-action Disney adaptations. Is that what you want? Slush for your brains? You might as well just go watch Riverdale. For, for the record, we both watch Riverdale regularly. In fact, earlier I was thinking to myself, when is Riverdale coming back? Yeah, I have that thought daily now. <laughs> because sometimes, you know, we both want slush for our brains. Yeah, honestly, after rambling about this season, season my brain might just be castle slush all over again. Yeah, me too. I guess that means we have to wrap up. We have to save you. We have to save ourselves. <laughs> okay, quick. Standout moment of the first season. Okay. Outside of Castle, 
<laughs> that carousel fight between Frank and Billy is acting at its highest mm-hmm. level. Honestly, like sometimes I'll just randomly think of that scene and I can hear Ben Barnes screaming. Oh. And every time I watch it, it's like I'm experiencing that excruciating Frank Castle brand of exfoliation. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) But also, Frank coming to terms with wanting to, at the very least, stay alive. So at the end of that second last episode, I guess then we've come full circle to me waxing poetic about the bloody death of William Rollins. (laughs) What about you? The, as you just mentioned, the second to last episode where Bill and Rollins are with Frank in the hideout is among some of the more intense, chill-inducing moments in television for me. There's a lot to gain from Billy's characterization, especially in those scenes. But at the same time, Rollins makes me want to puke every five seconds, so it's all highs and lows. Um, But also the sequence in the hotel where Karen is held hostage by Lewis. The way that they shot that entire thing keeps you on the edge of your seat. We didn't talk much about Lewis, even though he plays a driving role in the subplot, but with his story culminating in this intimate, harrowing moment, it really pulls at your heart. Also, it's an iconic castle (laughs) storyline. Quick, stop me before I go off again. I am stopping you before you go off again. (laughs) But I will say, you have undoubtedly good taste. Anyway, to our breakfast pals, our breakfast buds, breakfast burritos, if you will, please let us know your favorite or maybe least favorite moments of The Punisher Season 1 in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you for joining us again today. Remember to check out our socials at ThatBeanery, at BreakfastBeanery, and BreakfastBeanery.tumblr.com. <laughs> and of course, check out our website, BreakfastBeanery.com. Keep an eye out for the updates to our website, as well as some behind-the-scenes stuff on our social media. And most recently, I added a calendar page and an archive of all of our episodes thus far. You can also see what our next episode will be like and when it'll drop, even though our schedule's <laughs> pretty set in stone. Um, if you have any suggestions, please remember that you can email us at breakfastbeanerypodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so suggestions can include episode ideas or shows or characters you'd like to hear us talk about. So we'll see you in two weeks for the last of our Punisher series. We'll be focusing on three important men in Frank Castle's life. So be sure to check it out. Thank you and bye. Look at that. 38 minutes. That's pretty, that's pretty, it's pretty rocking. Oh, stop.